Today we are in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is the conversion of Saul. The salvation, if you can say, of Saul. Now, for those of you who don't have a very long uh, uh, background in, in the Bible or, or, or a church background, you, you may sometimes be confused because in the Old Testament we talk about a Saul and in the New Testament we talk about a Saul and he didn't live quite so long. There are two different Sauls, okay? So the Old Testament Saul is a king. He was the first king of Israel. Um, this, this Saul is, is uh, he was very much a defender of the orthodoxy of Jewish faith, right? And, and at this point, let me drop you in with some context. The Christian faith is starting to grow. There are more and more and more people coming into faith in Jesus Christ. If you've been following us in the book of Acts, you will know that signs and wonders are taking place. More than that, the church is coming together to live like a new kind of family. The kind of family where they would quite literally sell their possessions um, to support each other. And all these things, together with the preaching of the Word, the preaching of the coming of the Kingdom of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, all these things come together to create this strange but new and very exciting thing called the church. And more and more people started seeing this and saying, I want a piece of that. Because if I, I see power, I see the power of a living God, I see lives being changed, I see people being more loving to their neighbour than I've ever seen before. And outside, people look after their own, they're after number one. Here, they're after each other and they're after the love of God. And it's just different. So more and more people are coming into the power of God. And as this is happening, the power of the orthodox, at this point, right, I, I use orthodox loosely, right, of the Jewish religious elite, right, they are the elite, they are the Jewish leaders, right, are starting to feel very threatened. And so one of them is a young firebrand. His name is Saul of Tarsus. And, if, and this is the first full unveiling of Saul of Tarsus in the book of Acts. We saw a small glimpse of him. And earlier when we were playing the icebreaker, we were playing win, lose or draw, okay, um, at 9.45, come for icebreakers, right? Um, Isabel drew a picture of, of, of um, a man looking up to heaven and a few other people pelting rocks at him, right? That was the story of the stoning of Stephen, right? And if you remember the stoning of Stephen, there was a man who was standing with all the cloaks. So all the men took off their outer garments, put there, and then go and like, you know, uh, baling batu, right? And the man who was looking after the cloaks and in effect overseeing the entire uh, uh, killing was this young firebrand, Saul of Tarsus. He was an up coming young Pharisee, you know, uh, uh, um, he was very astute in his Jewish uh, uh, texts. He was, he was very strong, very observant, and he could not stand this thing called Christianity. He could not stand this new sect of Judaism, right? They, 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 they berhala, right? They are, they are worshipping uh, uh, wrong. They are doing the wrong thing, right? And so he started going around persecuting them. He started going around uh, uh, to make life really, really hard. So in Acts chapter 9, we drop in. I'm going to read the entire text here. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues 
at Damascus. Damascus is a city north of Jerusalem. So you have to travel on the road going north. He's going to Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way is the Christian faith, okay? In the early days, they called it the way, okay? If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now, I just want to pause here. It's very irregular for them to haul women out and to arrest them. Just so you all know, okay, normally you arrest the men. Okay, it's just, that's just more normal in those days, right? Today, I don't know, maybe we'll arrest anyone, right? Um, but in that time, it was very strange. For, so you would have to, the women would have to be quite threatening, okay, uh, to the social order and everything for them to actually go in and arrest them as well, okay? But here he is, he's on his way, suddenly a light shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the first voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now the men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, physically open, he saw nothing. He was actually blinded. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Lord, may you bless the reading and unpacking of this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I've got a pop quiz for you guys. Okay, you just heard the story. Okay, this is the quiz. How many times is Paul's conversion story told in the book of Acts? It's either one or more than one. Okay, or two or three or four. It's not zero because it's told once already. How many times is the story told in Acts? Yep, we got some. We got two over there. We got three over there. Three, three, three. Wow, you're good. You're good with your Bible. Yeah, I'm very proud of y'all. It's told three times, right? It's told three times. Wait, do you all know it's three because uh, during sound check we click through the slides? No, no, y'all actually know this. Y'all actually know this. It's on the slides. <laughs> Do you all know this because you, you link tree the slides? Yeah. Oh, one of you is confessing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, can't, I shouldn't put these things on the deck. Yeah. Three times. Three times. Once in Acts 9, which is this one. Once in Acts 22. And once in Acts 26. And so, don't worry. I, you won't see me coming up to reprise the same sermon two more times in season two. Okay. Um, we'll either, you know, group a bunch of other things together or there'll be a different angle, right? But how many of you also remember, um, hey, you know what? I wanted to ask you this question. How many of you remember once when I was asking y'all, when you read your Bible, who do you identify with? You remember me asking y'all that? Because who you identify with makes a huge difference 
in terms of what story or what lesson you're going to learn from your Bible. Okay? Now, I'm going to ask you, honest, huh? honest, huh? how many of you, you read the conversion of Saul, you identify with Saul? Okay? There'll be, there'll be, there'll be one, I, I know there'll be a small handful of you. How many of you quite clearly say, I can't relate? Because I don't feel like I go around grabbing Christians, doing bad things, you know, being, or uh, 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 not even Christians, right? I don't, I don't go around being like militant activists, you know, causing harm to everyone. So you may not identify with salt. Okay? And, for, and for that matter, um, uh, do you uh, uh, relate with, to the disciples in Damascus? How many of you, you feel that you, maybe you relate a bit to the disciples in Damascus? Yes? No? Maybe not because, you know what? Guess what? No one's on our doorstep trying to serbu our church, you know? You don't have like Jais Jakim all hanging around us trying to cause trouble because that's not happening. And it's not happening right now. I hope it never happens, right? Um, and so, you yourself may not feel like you can relate to anybody in this story, right? And so, but I want to I wanna put pause on this, huh? And actually provoke you a little bit and ask you, are you prepared to relate and identify with Saul in this story for just a little bit, right? Before I get to the rest of this opening part, I want to sh- I, I, I also ask you, do you remember the Ethiopian eunuch, okay? How he was on the road, right? And he was reading Isaiah. He was searching for God. He didn't understand. And then Philip came running faster than a chariot, right? And meets up with him, okay? And then, you know, explains scripture to him. So he believes, finds water, gets baptized, end of story, right? It's a parallel, you know? The Ethiopian eunuch story is a parallel to the salvation of, of Saul of Tarsus, right? And, I, and, I've, and I've done this. Both of them are on a road, traveling. One of them is traveling away from Jerusalem south, Right? And that's the eunuch. He's going from south on the Gaza road, going to Gaza. For you, it's, it's this way, right? It's, it's west, right? Um, and the other, which is Saul of Tarsus, is traveling from Jerusalem north. So they are both on the road. Both of them are stopped in their tracks, right? While they are happily, merrily doing their own thing, someone comes, you know, and interrupts them, disrupts what they are doing, right? And as a result of that, both of them encounter Jesus on the road. Both of them hear the Word of God and end up believing in Jesus, giving their lives to Him, and getting baptized at the end of the story. Of course, there is one clear difference, right? For the Ethiopian eunuch, he was seeking and he did not understand. He was seeking, he was doing his best, but he could not understand. For Saul of Tarsus, it appears that he already believes he understands, right? And therefore, as a result, he's not really seeking. He's not really... Um, maybe the expression is he doesn't quite have the intellectual humility, right? He doesn't have that, that posture, the learning posture. He's not keen to, be, to, to receive new things, right? He's just, I know the way, I know the right way, everyone else is wrong, I'm going to go and show everybody that they're wrong, right? And then he's close to all other ideas already. He's just really, really very fixed, right? And so you see this, I hope 
uh, um, when you read your Bible, sometimes there are lots of parallels, right? And actually, Saul of Tarsus' story parallels forward as well into, into Peter uh, um, being sent to the Gentiles. That's another day's story. Today, I want to share with you three things. Three things that I believe God is trying to teach us through this text. He's trying to deal with our right to zeal. He's also uh, uh, going to show us that He can sometimes blind to heal. And at some point, at any point, He may very well have someone He will send to reveal. Okay, so there is the right to zeal. He's going to deal with our right, our, our right to be fiery, our right to be an activist, our right to make things correct, you know. Um, he's going to deal with that a little. He's going to sometimes blind us in order to heal us and then send in order to reveal, right? Let's start with the first one. It is the right to zeal. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, right? He's got this, all these letters. Uh, um, now, I just want us to appreciate for a moment the fact that we have a, a more civil society today where at least we don't live in an environment or under the kind of laws where a religious leader can get in-house religious letters and then go around and yank people out of their homes, you know, and arrest them and throw them into prison without trial. Okay, so we, are, we live in, if may say, better times. We live in times where there's a little bit more law and order. I see a little bit, and I'm looking at Rodney to see if, if he agrees with a little bit, right? <laughs> we live in times where you can't just go around yanking people out of their homes, right? And I think we should appreciate that. Let's not take that for granted. Because in most of human history, this can easily take place. In fact, this is already quite civilized. This is under Roman law. They already uh, um, have some kind of loose order, right? But here he is. He's got his, his religious warrant for arrest, okay? And he's going around catching people. Now, here's the, here's the thing I want you to see. Huh? He's going to bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's breathing threats and murder. Now, do you think Saul of Tarsus knew he was doing the wrong thing? At this point how, how convinced Is Saul Of his correctness On a scale of 1 to 10 Okay Everybody think of a number Okay How sure is this guy How sure is this guy And convicted Is this guy About his calling in life He's like a 10 He's like a 10 out of 10 Right Okay Maybe the, I don't know if there's like A smidgen of doubt 9.8 9 He's really convicted Okay and his conviction comes from where? Now, now I, I'm releasing you off the slide, you know, into your Bible knowledge, into your redeemed, sanctified imagination, you know. Like, where is his conviction coming from? Was that? Well, his knowledge, the law, was that? He, he was schooled under Gabaliel, okay, what else? His bloodline, what else? His, his zeal? His, his, his zeal for the law, his zeal for, for the Jewish faith. Hey, you know what? You know what? You know who that sounds like? It sounds like sounds like 21st century church. Right? I mean, when, when we are convicted of, of things, 
aren't we so sure about it because we are so sure that God spoke to us. We're so sure from our scriptures. We're so sure from the teachers who taught us like Gamaliel, you know, like our pastors or whatever, or from some online guru whom we've been following. Aren't we so sure about our faith things that because we have great zeal for God, you know, and you see people who are kind of like, who think differently, who act differently, and who live differently. And sometimes the way they live is an abomination, and it's a sin, and it's horrific. And you say, no, that's the wrong way of living. And we go after it. Right? And a lot of the, I can tell you, 10 out of 10 of the time, it is coming out from a place of deep conviction, really deep spiritual, religious, faith, conviction that this is what God stands for and this is what God cannot stand and He has utoskan me to be, uh, uh, to, 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 you know, show them, make a stand for God, right? He has. Has He? Has He? And we see in this story, Saul, so convicted. Now how do you know if the inner conviction... Now, you can be convicted over an issue and you can be godly convicted about an issue. Your actions and how you steward that conviction, how you manage that conviction, what you do when you walk out of your house in order to manifest that conviction is a whole different thing. And how do you know when your actions are manifesting what God is really saying or manifesting what your own flesh is saying? How do you know? Is there a way to test these things? Is there a way to know these things? Because I can tell you, from the people who are like Saul of Tarsus, activists, brutal, breathing threats and murder, their convicted is God. Right down to people who go to school and start shooting, you know, in other places in the world, they are convicted that they are hearing voices asking them to do these things. How do you know which one is God? There must be a core, a character of God that is coming out in the way we manifest His, the hearing. So that if we are manifesting it in a way that is in alignment with the character of God, then we know it's of God. That's why it's important you pray. And for those of you who want to learn and grow in prayer, you know, speak with Pastor Ramesh and, uh, and be, join them in the, in the prayer retreat because it's in prayer where you really learn to hear the character of God. And sometimes the actions that we go out to take are not actually in alignment with the character of God. And that's why we need to be very careful because you can hear any kind of voice, my friend. You can hear any kind of voice provoking you to do any kind of great activism for God in God's name. And they can even show you things that look biblical and say that, ha, see, didn't they go around killing people, right? In the Old Testament, so should you. Why you laugh? You don't believe it's true? Hey, really gone, okay? You laugh because I also want to laugh, right? It's true. It's true. And here's the thing. I, I showed you this slide um, when I was preaching on the stoning of Stephen, right? What would drive a mob, right, to kill a man like this? Do you remember this? What would drive a mob, an angry mob? And is this the Christian way? I did ask you, is this the Christian way? Even if they disagree with you, 
even if they are living in an ungodly way? So, Hello Church, I'm asking you, even if they live in an ungodly way, is this the Christian way to respond? Even if they start passing laws that make their way of living acceptable, and now you've got to accept that this is part of Malaysian law, is this the Christian way? Fewer knows, right? Fewer knows, right? Even if this eventually becomes the norm and your way of life now, our way of life now, becomes the minority, is this our way? I showed you when I was preaching on the Ethiopian eunuch this slide. I'm going to read it out again because some of you weren't here. It is... It is an exposition on the necessity for slavery, black slavery in America, in, written in the 1800s. This woman, Mary Williamson, but it's not just her, many other people talked about these things. She said, forgive the language, when the Negroes were first brought from Africa, they were heathen savages. But after a few years, they learned the speech and customs of the whites. And more than all, they learn the worship of the true God. In thinking of this, we have to admit that slavery must have been permitted by the Lord in order to bring heathen people out of darkness into the light of the gospel. Is this our way? Now I'm telling you, a lot of the times, religious language and religious motivations like standing up for God or making the gospel reach people can be used and sometimes can be abused to do violent things. And the way to know is not to start from the front and say that, oh, but the conviction feels so real or the hearing feels so clear or my feelings are so strong. You don't start there. You don't start there. You actually have to look at the behaviours that those convictions are calling you to do. And what are those convictions asking you to do? If those convictions are asking you to enslave people from a different land, or if those convictions are asking you to bludgeon a man to death with stones, or if those convictions are asking you to go online and start cancel culture on everybody's uh, um, uh, uh, Twitter feed or someone's Instagram post, which, by the way, is a modern-day equivalent of stoning someone to death, right? Okay? People have had to shut their accounts, they've had to change their names, they've had to, you know, uh, 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 and all that because of some of these things. When your convictions are asking you to do these things, you have to ask yourself and start backwards and say, is this the way of God? Does this align to the things Jesus spoke about? Does this align? Let's just start with the Sermon on the Mount. Does this align with love your neighbour? Love God, love your neighbour. Does it align with um, love your enemies, praise for those who persecute you? Does this align with the rainfalls uh, uh, um, on the righteous and the wicked alike? Right? God's, God's goodness is, is there available to everyone. Does this align with... with um, uh, uh, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
Does it align with any like just the basic? I like pulling out like first five things coming out from my head, things that Jesus said. That if it doesn't align, then maybe your convictions are not so well formed. And maybe your convictions, though they may be well formed, are breathing and manifesting themselves in actions that are ungodly. And we need to be very careful about this. We need to be very careful so that God has access to deal with our right to zeal. Because angry people, and the world is very angry today, huh? So angry, my gosh, I cannot take it some days, right? We're so angry with each other. And everyone is fighting with everyone. It's just an echo chamber. Every, and me and my gang versus you and your gang. And, and, and it's just, and it's not, it, I know it's not a Malaysian thing necessarily. Or of course, it is also it's a universal thing, okay? But whatever happens there, I think I've, I've seen a lot of Malaysians co op a lot of these arguments, co op a lot of the attitudes. And we start bearing our right not to arms, but our right to zeal. Right? And we start waving our right to zeal so that we can start going around fighting each other, fighting each other. Actually, we're just you know, repeating things we, we heard on someone else's news feed. Right? And that's not the Christian way. Right? How does the kingdom of God respond to its rivals, to its ideological rivals, the people who think differently, have different ideas from us? Right? And they have such different ideas that they become rivals for the way our society is built. Right? How does the kingdom of God respond to these things? We have to ask ourselves that. Because friends going around being semi-violent, hostile, activism, like when you gather around and you just like, you know, make life threatening to people so that someone walking from their car to a clinic can feel like, like, really like they are, they are walking through the most pro-death, you know, kind of like, like street in the world, you know. I know I'm wading into some things today. I think that as, a, 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 as globalized people, we have to know the way of God. You can have your convictions about right and wrong. You must have your convictions about your right and wrong. But how you manifest those convictions, that's key. And that must be godly. It must be in conformance with the character of God. And if any of you want to bring out judges and, and, and Joshua to me and say, hey, God, God slaughtered a lot of people uh, um, uh, uh, as well, let's have lunch. Okay, let's have lunch. And if, yeah. We'll, we'll eat burgers, no knives and forks. I don't want to eat with knives and forks with you. Yeah. <laughs> the story goes on, right? Why are you persecuting me? And this is, another, this is another important point because Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul may well have said that, not you, I, who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul could well have said, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting the church. Same man. But I think he didn't need to say that. I think he didn't need to say that. I think he knew very well that when he persecuted these people and Jesus came, he was their Lord. You hit their Lord, you hit them, right? You whack Jesus, you whack the church. And we've all heard this before as well, right? Like that's why, that's why you cannot whack the church. Wow. What, is, what, what amounts to whacking the church, right? So I spent some time thinking about this because clearly there is a level on which Jesus identifies with his believers. And Jesus identifies with the weak and the oppressed. 
And that's why he said, one of the reasons why he said in Matthew 25, whoever, whatever you did to the least among you, you did it to me. If you gave a cup of water to the least among you, you gave a cup of water to me. If you, if you housed someone who was homeless, you know, you housed me when I was homeless. You all remember that verse, right? And that, that is a way for Jesus to say that what happens to the people who are mine happens effectively to me. I feel it. I take it. I receive it. You beat them, you beat me, right? And we have this on one hand. But you know, we also need to hold this in tension because there's a tension that we need to hold together. On one hand, yes, it's true. You whack your church, you whack Jesus, right? And again, I want us to be aware that sometimes this kind of theology can get used or abused by people in shoes like mine in order to say, you cannot say anything bad about the man of God, huh? Come on. Come on. You cannot say anything bad about the church, huh? You cannot criticize the church, huh? You, you touch alone, huh? Oh, you've come for you, man. You touch his body, man. <laughs> now, is that truth? Yes. Is there abuse? Yes. How do we deal with this? We need to hold this together because we live in a day and age where every few months you see a story of a pastor who fell. You see a story of a pastor who fell through some kind of sin, okay? And in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, maybe it was a lot of uh, um, uh, immoralities, sexual sins, you know, um, affair here, that kind of thing, you know, um, or embezzlement, right? Like, like, like money, misappropriation of funds. You're seeing more and more, okay? And I think if you, those of you who are familiar with Mars Hill, you know, uh, uh, Mark Driscoll, you're seeing more and more cases of pastors who fall and are asked to resign over power issues. Pastors who are forced to resign by their boards over, over domination, manipulative behaviour and a leadership that does not conform with the humility, the, the humble uh, uh, leadership of Christ. And so we need, to be, we need to be armed. Not the wrong kind of arms. We need to be prepared in our hearts to be able to hold certain difficult things in tension. Yes, it is true. If you whack the church, you really do whack Jesus and he's explicit about it. But on the other hand, we also need to be aware that many people have used something like that to safeguard their own position. I could teach you guys that you cannot touch the man of God. You cannot say anything bad about me. You cannot say anything bad about the church. You cannot say anything bad about my leaders because you touch us, you touch Jesus, man, you die. Yeah, you know, and I can threaten you with religious language until you feel some of you will leave because you'll be like this, rubbish, right? And then some of you will stay and you'll be afraid. Right? And you will feel like you really cannot even give feedback. And I want us to be able to hold these things in tension because Paul, the Saul of Tarsus, was operating under an environment where religious leaders can just go out there and do anything they like. Okay? And then all that is being changed. Yes, God is dealing with our right to zeal. Both our zeal to go out there and whack other people over their convictions and also our convictions about 
our zeal in kind of like safeguarding ourselves to make sure that no one ever unmasks some of the more carnal things that we may or may not be doing. And just one last point. Can you imagine if these two things come together and in your guarding of yourself and in your attack of someone else, you actually end up attacking someone whom Jesus wants to protect. I don't need you to have any culture issue in your mind. You don't need to have one. I'm just asking you, has it ever occurred to you that in your zeal to attack people who think differently from you, you might actually be a Saul of Tarsus? And you are attacking people whom God is intending to protect. God may not even be in agreement or alignment with them, but God may want to protect them. We see this in our scriptures, in our, in our New Testament all the time, where the Pharisees were attacking the, the, the widow, the prostitute, and the tax collector, and all these people were under siege, constant siege by the entire religious elite of their day. Every day cannot whack, every day cannot put down, every day cannot believe, every day cannot put down, right? And Jesus was saying, in your zeal, you're whacking people whom you think are immoral. But I want to save them. I want to love them. I want to dine with them. Let's make sure you're very careful. Okay? Zeal is a double-edged sword. You, you exercise your zeal correctly, and God can be very proud of you, and He will. Right? But zeal must be controlled. And zeal must be meek, controlled strength. Right? Controlled strength. Your zeal must be pointing in the right direction and manifesting in a godly way. God deals with our right to zeal. God will sometimes blind to heal. Let's look at the Word. Actually, let's pray. let's pray. Let's pray about the first point. Father, we just want to bring this issue before you and be humble. Lord, at this moment, I just want to bring the whole of Sungai Buloh Church to not and to stop thinking about someone else's church and someone else's pastor and someone else's culture war and someone else's issue. But Father, we just want to bring ourselves before you. It's just me and you. Just me and you and my church around me. Shape my heart. Change the way I am. If you see, Lord, that, you have, that I, I can be a little bit, uh, I can manifest my convictions in an ungodly way, Lord Jesus, I am before you for you to touch and heal and change. Lord, I will not be so aloof or so stubborn in my ways that I can have no consideration I might be wrong. I want to be humble and I want to be prepared to hear you say anything to me. So Lord, if you want to correct me today, you can correct me today. Lord, if you want to reshape me today, you have full access to reshape me today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Acts 9 verse 8 Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He was effectively blind. For three days he was blind, right? Neither ate nor drank. He was, he was in utter... His, his, his kaki had to hold his hand and literally walk him the remainder of the journey into Damascus. And we don't know how far he was to Damascus. Some commentators believe that they were near Damascus already. Then Jesus met him, right? But really the text is silent. So we don't know how far. I don't know how far he had to walk on foot because 
uh, he was probably on horseback. There would, you would hardly walk all the way from Jerusalem uh, to Damascus on foot alone. Mo they would have been likely on horseback. And if you look at old paintings, Renaissance paintings, you'll see them on, horse on horses. Horses are, you know, everywhere, you know, it's chaotic. Now, he had to walk the remainder of the way because he was blind. He couldn't see, right? Now, for those of you who are at camp, I spoke a little bit about willful blindness when we looked at Father Isaac being blind and giving the, the, the blessing to the wrong son, right? And, and it's very layered, okay? It's very layered because his, blind, his physical blindness was a metaphor for his spiritual blindness, for his willful blindness. His sengaja want to blind himself because he has a favourite son. And maybe he can't admit to having a favourite son, but he has a favourite son. And he would rather give the blessings to his favourite son, so to speak, right? And then the mother has her own kind of blindness and you get all these problems. I spoke about this at camp. And that's willful blindness when you purposely refuse to see things that are right in front of you to see. And that willful blindness is manifest, kind of like in the story as a literary device, right? God does that, right? But with his dimming of his eyes, right? He's, he can't see the real thing anymore. Now, blindness is used in the Bible as a metaphor for all kinds of spiritual blindness. And I've I wanted to show you this, right? You can go as far back as the men of Sodom. Remember when the angel of God came, okay? And they were, there was a group of men surrounding a house with angels, okay? There were angels came to visit Abraham as a guest, okay? Um, but the men of Sodom thought that the angels were very good-looking men and they surrounded the house and they were asking for these men to be released to them so that they could have their way with them. Right? They could violate them right? sexually. And so the angels show up, right? they open the door, strikes all the men with blindness. Then they start groping around the floor. Right? That blindness is both physical blindness, but it is also a metaphor for the blindness of their total moral decay. It's not just a sexual sin. It's a total moral decay in, in the city of Sodom. Right? And so you see blindness being used with double meaning there. You see blindness being used with double meaning with Father Isaac, with his sons, Esau and Jacob. I've told that story, but favoritism in the family is a form of blindness, right? We see blindness happening in Samson, right? At the end of his days, he had his eyes gouged out. He was, for all intents and purposes, could have been a great judge of Israel. Because he had, you know, God with him, the Holy Spirit empowering him, literally empowering him, right? But a lifestyle of habitual, carnal, must eat nice things, must have nice things, must have beautiful women, must have all the nice fleshly, carnal things. It became his lifestyle. It became a habitual taste bud. An appetite. Samson had. Sam, Samson's issue is not just Delilah. Okay, if you read Samson and uh, um, and you think his issue is just Delilah, you're you're seeing too small a problem. Samson's issue is from his whole life before he met Delilah, before he was married off, before he had all of these things, he had a carnal appetite. What he wants to eat, he must eat. He must eat it now, right? 
what he wants to get, he must get. He must get it now. And then he had the power, the strength to do it, right? And so, that's blindness. Eli. Remember Eli, the priest, and young, young Samuel? And Eli was being permissive with his sons. His sons were immoral. His sons were sleeping with the women in church and all kind of things, right? And then his eyes became dim. There was a blind man in John chapter 8. This is actually one of my favourite chapters in the whole Bible when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then you would imagine it would, it would, it would proceed like, a, like a, a, a story, a fascinating teaching of Jesus about light of the world. Actually, no. All of the Pharisees fight with him over the, his statement, light of the world, right? And whether he can, he can say something like that. And they fight, fight, fight. Until crazy, you know. Until like, literally like stand up, bang table, you know, like, we don't know who is your father, you know, like, we, and all these kind of like, you know, slurs. Fight until really crazy. And these are the spiritual eyes of Israel, huh? fighting with Jesus. Huh? Jesus, out in fight with them already. He walks out, he finds a blind man right outside church, heals him. So the blind man gets sight and believes in Jesus. And then the seeing men in the church are blind and they cannot see Jesus. Go back, read John 8. It's a beautiful chapter about the metaphor of blindness and the parallel where you've got one blind man and seeing men, but in spiritual conditions, it is the reverse, right? God does that. He blinds Saul to show him his spiritual blindness. He blinds Saul so that later he can open both eyes at the same time. Because later, he is going to open up his spiritual eyes and physical eyes at the same time, right? For three days, he was without sight. Now, if I ask you, three days in darkness, what do you think of? You're good Bible people. Y'all should be fast. Come on. Three days in total darkness. What do you think of? Jonah. Three days in total darkness. What else do you think of? Jesus in the tomb, right? There's a picture in this text of death, entombment, and resurrection. There is a picture here where you're seeing, right, that he goes into darkness. It's like a form of three days in the tomb. It's a form of three days in the belly of the fish, right? And in there, he has to wrestle. If you go back and read Jonah, I believe it's chapter 3, he is in the belly of the fish and he is wrestling with it. I don't want, but I want. And then he fights with God. He fights with his own flesh. He fights with his own mind, you know. And eventually he prays that prayer in Jonah 3, right? He says that, fine, I'll do this, you know. And then, and then he calls out to God in his darkness, in his death, he calls out. And then at the end of it, he, unbeknownst to him, third day has arrived and then the fish spits him out. And Jesus we will never know, at least on this side of our life, what happened in those, in those days, those, that time he, he was in the tomb. We know he dies. We know he's resurrected. What happened in between? Jonah gives us a clue, right? Jesus himself says that, he will be, that Jonah is the clue. And we see something happening with Saul, that for three days he neither ate nor, nor drank. It's a picture of death, right? Lying there, doing nothing, right? And then after that, right? After that, something happens. He's going to send someone to reveal, right? So God deals with our right to zeal. God will blind you to heal. And then He's going to send, parallel, He's going to send someone to reveal. And I want to show you that this is a very, very strange candidate that He has chosen to, to, to send. 
I'm going to read this new text for you, okay? It's a continuation of Acts 9. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. By the way, there are two Ananiases as well, okay? There's Ananias and Sapphira, okay? And this is a different Ananias. He didn't come back to life, okay? He's a different man. Named Ananias, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. Wow, so good, huh? Y'all can say, here I am, Lord. Not, can, huh? Okay, I can. can. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a different Judas, so many the same names, right? At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So while God is speaking to Ananias, go to this house, and you're going to find Saul of Tarsus. Lay your hands on him. He has seen this happen already. Meanwhile, at Saul's side, he's seeing a vision. And he's seeing a vision of a man that looks just like Ananias coming to him, you know, laying his hands on him. And his vision gets restored. The verse goes on. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here... He has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. That's him. He's, in, he's a man of Damascus. He is the very Christians in Damascus. Saul is coming to capture. And God is asking him to go and pray and minister to this guy. God is, this is a fulfillment of, of love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is exactly the fulfillment of that verse, right? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake, for my name, for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. I just want to pause for a moment here. This is crazy obedience, huh? This is some crazy obedience and I want to exhort you and encourage every single one of you, including myself, to this kind of obedience. But you know what? If I ask you for obedience like that, if we ask of ourselves obedience like that, it won't just come. Obedience comes from faithful walking with God, faithful spending time with God, faithful hearing of God, faithful take small steps of faith and leaps of faith with God before this can happen. This is like Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac, right? It's like you don't get there and suddenly be able to do it, you know, if you have not been walking with God. This kind of obedience is the end product of a lifestyle and a lifetime of walking closely with God. And you can see the way he prays. Yes, Lord, here I am, right? And laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Wow, can you hear that? Brother not just brotherhood in their Jewish faith and their Jewish race, but I believe very soon it's a different kind of brotherhood. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Paul's eyes. It just fell, right? And he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened 
See, my friends, what is God doing through Ananias when he does this? So many things. I can only, I, I can only put three here, but there are many other things, all kinds of things, so layered. One of the things, the things that God is doing through Ananias is He's breaking down all avenues in Ananias. He's working in Ananias. He's breaking down all the avenues for vengeance, for retaliation. You know how nice it feels when your enemy is like in your hands and he's weak and he's blind and you want to go like, ha ha, right? Told you so, got you. Who's the boss now? Who's the this now, right? Our flesh wants to do that. Our, our, hey, you, you think not, you don't have a real enemy who really wants your life only. Uh. If you have a real enemy who really wants your life, you got this, uh, you have him in the hands. Uh. You can tease and mock the fella. You can, you can, you can joke at the fella. You, vengeance is there. You can do it if you want. You can retaliate if you want. Your enemy put in your hands for you to crush if you want. Would you crush? Would you mock? Would you hit? Would you jeer? Would you sneer? God is saying to Ananias, I'm going to cut out every avenue for you to do this. There is no vengeance, no retaliation. What you're going to do is you're going to go pray for this guy. You can't gloat over your upper hand now. I will not let you gloat over your enemy. And I think that's a lesson for all of us to learn. To not gloat against our enemy. We learned that last year, okay? I remember after the elections, I told y'all, let's not gloat. Let's not gloat, right? Let's just be very real, okay? Once that was us, you know, tomorrow it might be us again, right? There's no avenue for vengeance, retaliation, and gloating. Another thing God is doing is, He's showing you that you can face your enemies. When God leads you to face your enemies, He's going to give you the courage, He's going to give you the strength, He's going to prepare you. He's going to prepare you by going ahead and working on your enemy as well because that's what he did. He worked on the enemy as well, simultaneously preparing you and preparing them for the encounter. And he's going to give you favour with them. Now, I want to be very careful here. I'm not asking you to go and face every single one of your enemies without praying, without discernment, without anything. You just walk in and go like, Hi, enemy, I'm here to bless you. I mean, you want to be wise and you want to walk with God and you want to know that when He calls, He is already calling in a context where He's preparing you and He's preparing them. And so I say this for the really serious things where God is asking you to face up to some of the difficult things in your life, to face up to some of... Sometimes the enemy is our past, sometimes the enemy is ourselves, sometimes the enemy is our family members, sometimes the enemy is someone else. But when God is preparing you for a moment where you can stand face and see that thing in eye to eye and face up to it, know that He gives you the courage. When He calls, He will prepare. When He sends, He will be with you. He will go ahead of you. He will grant you favour. And that's what's happening with Ananias. The third thing I just want to show you, on Saul's side, what is God doing? We saw what God is doing in Ananias' side. What's happening in Saul's heart? When your enemy unblinds you, when your enemy prays for you, when your enemy loves you and ministers to you, God is also tearing down all the prejudice that Saul has for those guys. 
those Christians. God is tearing down the prejudice. God is tearing down all avenue for me to hate them because He's just come and done a blessing to me. God is working on both sides. Next year, there's another presidential election in America. And whatever happens there, a lot of us are going to take sides. Don't bluff. You all do. Okay, I know. God is going to work on both sides here among us. Okay? I don't preach to an American crowd, so I'm preaching to you all. God is going to work on us so that we have a softness of heart to love the people who think differently from us and know how to reach across because both sides demonize each other. God is going to work in us so that we are different kind of people. The first way is to whack. The second way is to run. The third way is the Christ way, to stand and love the enemy. Amen? And just very quickly, I want to show you this before we end. Because as you want to walk with God closely, as you want to stand with Him, and I told you that obedience comes from a lifetime of walking closely with Him, I want you to know this, my friends. Being with God is not a scary thing. You're not being told. Maybe you were told as a child that you shut up, cannot talk about God, cannot talk back, cannot this, cannot that, right? And you're like, God's not like that. God is not like that. And I want to show you from here. Lord, and then I says, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil, how much this, how much... Why are you sending me to him, right? Now, this shows us that God is not looking for blind faith. Ananias did not have blind faith. Oh, okay, okay. And then like sweat, see out, have to go, right? Like, <laughs> why didn't you tell God you're scared? How to tell God? God is God, ma. I must say yes, quite, quite say, yes, God, I will go. And then on the side like, ah, die, right? God does not need you to front to Him. You can healthily engage with Him at the level of all your fears and all your uncertainties and all your doubts. And I want you to see that from Ananias' side, he can speak openly with God. I want you to see that God does not treat Ananias like, do, because I said so. Right? Just do. I asked one. I'm God of the universe. Have you seen how splendor, my splendor, my glory? Do, you small, you know, ant. Right? God does not treat Ananias like that. He's a very reasonable God. And by reasonable, I mean he uses reason to persuade Ananias that it's going to be okay. He says, go. You know why? For he is a chosen instrument of mine. I have chosen him. He's going to do things. He's going to do all this. And in fact, to the extent that he's going to have to suffer. And that's his journey. That's his problem, right? He's going to suffer a lot. And that lowers the barrier for Ananias. And it helps us to know that God is not a God who just says, because I said so, do. In the same way that I've called you to a daily walk of obedience with God. God walks with you daily and He levels with you. He doesn't have to. He's God of the universe, but He does. He chooses to speak to His people like that. And so, when God sends you on whatever He's going to send you on, to share the gospel, to face an enemy, to face a fear, to bring God's word to someone, to deal with a conflict, 
to repair a relationship, to broker peace between two people, whatever God sends you to. Firstly, let's allow Him to deal with our right to zeal, to take sides and to, uh, and, and to whack. Can I have the worship team on stage? Let's allow God to first deal with our right to zeal. And then show us that we ourselves may be blind in some of these things. And to allow Him access, you know, to allow Him access so that He can come and see our own, if you can say blindness, our own blind spots and for Him to show us and to teach us. And the third one, for Him to send us with us knowing that God is working on us and if, it, if He has called, He is working on them. And He is always a God of shalom. He is a God of peace. And His ways are righteous. His ways are good. His ways are always to bring about obedience to Him, love for one another. So my friends, I can't even begin to predict what you're going through. If this message spoke with you at all, what's happening in your family, what's happening in your home, what's happening in your workplace. But let us all rise because you know and God knows. And let's hold our hands open before Him. I don't want this to immediately jump into a sing-song session. I want you to spend time with the Lord. And the worship team is going to lead us all into words of truth and words of power. But I want you to stand before the Lord and bring Bring whatever you're going through before Him. Amen. Hallelujah. Sharaka. Heavenly Father, I just speak over every single one of us right now. Facing situations either of you being in conflict, someone conflicting with you, or you are in a situation where you have two people whom you know who are in conflict. I want you to bring this before the Lord. He says, every knee shall bow. Both knees shall bow. All four knees shall bow. All five, six knees shall bow. Every knee shall bow before the Lord. For He is Lord. Everyone will confess shalom to one another. Everyone shall confess peace and God's power and goodness over one another. So hold your hands before you right now and I pray for you. Father, I just thank you, Lord God. Holy Spirit, you see every one of us. We are your people. We are agents of peace. Lord Jesus, you see every one of us. We stand here saying, Lord, make me a peacemaker. For your word says that blessed are those who are peacemakers. Father, thank you, Lord God. Your peacemakers stand before you. Your peacemakers have their hands open and their hearts giving you full access. Lord Jesus, teach me. Show me in the day to come, in the days to come, in the weeks to come, how I can stand in a loving way before, if I can say, my enemies how I can stand before those who are fighting with me, how I can stand before those whom I want to fight with. And here I am, Lord. Here I am. So Father, I thank you, Lord God. May you now 
Separate us with your blessing, O Lord God. And bring us back to our homes to be agents and carriers of love, overflowing with the goodness of God and with the ways of God. Now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord turn His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of His countenance toward you and give you shalom. And all of God's people say, Amen. All of God's people say, Amen. Amen.